to the Historical Present, a podcast made possible by the support of the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. I'm Ben Rowe, a doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford. And I'm James Sikowski, a doctoral student in English, also at Oxford. In these podcasts, we attempt to think through some of the challenges of history and some of the challenges of thinking historically about contemporary issues that span multiple disciplines. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely our own or those of our guest and do not represent the views of Oxford University or any of its departments or faculties. Today we're delighted to be joined by Dan Carlin, whose two podcast series are among the most popular in the world. His podcast Common Sense takes a historical perspective on contemporary politics and international affairs, while his series Hardcore History engages with key historical episodes in a way that's simultaneously broad-ranging and granular. In the words of Sam Harris, From time to time, one discovers a person so good at his job that it is almost impossible to imagine him doing anything else. I recently had this experience listening to Dan Carlin's podcast, Hardcore History. Carlin's way of speaking is so in tune with his subject and his enthusiasm so contagious that one can't help feeling he was born to do this work. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Dan, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, I thought we would start off by asking a little bit about learning from history or lessons from history, which is a, uh, a slogan people like to throw around. But something that I always occurs to me when people say that is, first of all, whose lessons and what lessons? So, for example, we still can't agree on whose fault the First World War was, or even if it was anyone's fault at all, if that's the right question to be asking. So when someone says so, well, the lessons of the First World War are A, B and C or X, Y or, or Z, how can people who are interested in history, who think that history has something to, to tell policymakers today, give policymakers something other than the banal, which is something like don't rush into war or war can have unforeseen consequences or something too narrowly specific to, to the issue in question? Is it possible to take away lessons from history? Well, and, and you just mentioned the banal. It might be more possible to take banal lessons from history rather than specific ones because the variables are what trips you up. I mean, here, for example, in the United States, it's it's a popular refrain to hear people say that the lead-up to the Second World War with Adolf Hitler and appeasement and Munich and peace in our time and all that teaches us all that you can't, you know, appease dictators. And of course, it doesn't teach us that at all. It teaches us that you probably can't appease one particular dictator, but every dictator is different, so that's the variable. Every situation is different, so that's the variable. It's almost the banal that it teaches you. For example, um, if, if you wanted to look at something like Afghanistan, and before you decide to send in military forces to a place like Afghanistan, you might conduct the history, take a look at the history books and see that it usually doesn't go very well. In other words, it doesn't doesn't preclude the next endeavor from going well, but it shows you that it's likely to be full of all sorts of terrible things that you didn't foresee and a bunch of things that you should foresee, right? Bad terrain, bad weather, uh, difficult pushback from the locals, all that kind of stuff. So in a sense, it's a very broad lesson from history that says going into Afghanistan is likely going to be problematic, whereas we all, I think, want to gain really specific lessons from history. And the more specific you get, I think the less the less well it turns out to be something as a predictive tool. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Uh, the variables kill you. 
in the specific situations. Right, of course. And I, I think, is it maybe also the complexity of sort of situations as a general rule that also kills you? I think in in the academic world, anyway, um, a, a lot of the way that people make their names in academia is by taking somebody's treatment of some situation and saying, this is unacceptably generalistic. This is treating in broad, abstract strokes, but in fact really deserves really close attention and needs to be understood with respect to its specific context, which is a lot of times true, but then it kind of gets you into this rough situation where you're sort of saying, um, okay, we can only understand everything with respect to its specific context. Uh, abstractions are bad. Generalities are bad. But that kind of leaves you in a rough place where it's very difficult to to act, I guess, based on these kind of very specific interpretations and understandings of what's happened before. So uh, what, what do you do in that situation? Do you just sort of, is the idea that you just do the best you can and, and see what happens? Or it sounded to me a bit like you, you're sort of saying that what we need to do is act based on probabilities or sort of, yeah, shade the balances of the situation and sort of act in, in, in such a way that the probable outcome is the one that we're planning for. It's funny because I hadn't thought about it like that until you just brought it up, but it's almost as if it's the opposite of what you said, that it's, that it's only the broad generalities where it is helpful, and the more specific you get, the more you see that how individual all these situations are and how each individual situation makes it hard to use past situations as predictive tools. So, for example, let's get back to our Afghanistan example. It's an immensely complicated situation, a thing like invading Afghanistan, right? It, it was always complicated. It was complicated when Alexander the Great did it. But you, you don't have to know each individual complication. You don't have to say, wow, the weather and the logistics are going to be a nightmare to simply look at the situation and say, so many people throughout history would not have had so much of a hard time unless we can sort of factor in the the understanding that there's going to be a bazillion variables you can't figure out now that will come to pass, right? You don't have to know what those variables are to take a look at the overall situation and say, so many people don't fail unless there's a whole bunch of things that come up. So it's a very generalized way of assuming a lot of complicated variables are going to be there. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, that's that's how I'd look at it. I suppose, I mean, so um, some uh, historian I know you've, um, you've, uh, you worked with when you were working on your American Peril episode, um, Ernest May, uh, made the point, uh, he wrote uh, a, a book along with another eminent historian about using history for uh, policy, uh, policy questions. And he made the very strong point among many that no one ever picks an historical analogy that contradicts their assumptions. <laughs> or very That's a wonder, it's a wonderful point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, he always says, you know, if you're, if you're trying to, and this, I can't think it's called the May method or something like that, but if you're trying to say, so what are we dealing with here? What is the situation that's in front of us? Oh, is it like 1938? Or is it like Britain appeasing the United States very successfully circa 1900 or whatever it might be? And you draw, take a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle and you'd have, you know, 10 similarities, 10 differences. But you need to be able to go through both sides before you can make a defendable attempt at saying this is like situation A or this is not like situation A, other than just saying, well, it seems to be like this because I want to argue for or against appeasement or whatever policy it is. I suppose um, 
I mean, the the issue that May also uh, made was that people use historical analogies all the time, whether consciously or not, whether they state it overtly or, or whether they just keep it tacit. Is they we, this is one of the most common ways in which people make comparisons and reason about things. Uh, is there a way, you know, other than just as you said, kind of keeping it quite broad of avoiding the obvious pitfalls, or is there a way that we can train ourselves? Do you think? to do this in a more smart way? You know, if I had to think about it, I often think that the way we use history is a much larger version of the way we all use personal experience in our own lives, right? I mean, the old line about you learn not to touch the hot stove. There's, there, I had a history professor that put it two ways. There's two ways you can learn the hot stove lesson when you're a young person. One is to touch the hot stove. The other is to hear a story of someone else touching the hot stove. And it was always, you know, pr- provided that the better answer was to learn from someone else's painful mistake. But no two situations are necessarily the same, right? Is the hot oven door the same as the hot stove or enough the same as the hot stove for you to draw a conclusion? So I think when we when we use our own personal experience in our own personal lives, that's the equivalent of us trying to learn from our own personal history. So I think it's natural for us to broaden that out on a societal-wide level and try to learn from our collective histories. Um, now, I remember having this discussion during the run-up to the well, both, actually, Iraq wars that the United States and Britain were involved in in the 1990s and early 2000s. And it was an interesting conversation because it would have people like yours truly trying to um, argue about past history in the region, um, you know, all the obvious problems that, 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 that rulers in that region were facing and, then, and that if we took over the mantle of rulership, we were going to be facing. And, you know, you always get the opposite viewpoint, which is that, yes, 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 that was the past, but what has changed is A or B. For example, in that era, the, the counter-argument was that the technology had made all those historical lessons invalid. So, and by the way, that's a, a, a an answer that you hear all throughout history. I mean, in the First and Second World Wars, you would often have people, you know, contradict the idea that, well, don't we know this is likely to work out badly by saying, yes, but conditions on the ground are different, right? We have aircraft now, or we have tanks now, or we have nuclear weapons now. And so all the past lessons are now moot. Um, it would be a little like saying that that lesson you learned about the hot stove is invalid now because you now have oven mitts. Um, and, and, and so so I think maybe this, this, this need or this desire on our part to learn from human history is just an extension of how we learn from our past experiences as individuals. Yeah. Well, actually, I, the, your analogy about the ovens reminds me of a quotation from Mark Twain. Uh, I, I, I'm going to botch this, but he said something along the lines of, you know, once a cat sits on a hot stove, he'll never do that again. But he also won't sit on a cold stove. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. I also like the one where, where Twain says, uh, uh, where Twain says history doesn't doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And I and I think that's a wonderful way of of, of suggesting the problems and the pitfalls of trying to use history as a predictive tool. Is that it's never quite the same, right? I mean, it's it's enough similar that you can start to maybe give yourself some rough ideas, but it's not close enough for you to draw you know hard concrete solutions. And so that's why I think everyone needs to be careful. And it's funny, but it, I, I often like. To to read um, 
the magazines and, and the educational and academic publications that are put out where historians will talk about the latest conference and what they discussed and they will often talk about the practical uses of history and whether or not there are any and and, and it's it's a fascinating discussion to watch the pros and cons uh, because some of these people are saying if there's no practical solution to history why do we learn it is it just a bunch of stories that are entertaining so i you know i'm not a historian so i consider myself a very interested and fascinated observer but i love these kind of questions yeah, they're, one, they're wonderful questions just to sort of to spin your intellectual machinery around, I guess. And one of, the, one of the questions I think that I sort of, a question of this type that came up in your Wrath of the Khans episode um, at, at the very beginning, actually, that, that I think is like this. I mean, it's unlikely there's ever going to be any sort of fast and hard answer to it. But you, you ask at the beginning of the Wrath of the Khans episode, um, sort of about the ethics of history and what historical distance means for historians and whether or not it's fair for, not fair, but ethical for historians to look at what the Mongols did, um, you know, murdering, it's millions of people, I think, even, even at that time when there really weren't all that many people on the planet. Um, and looking at that as kind of a, ben a net benefit in the, the grand sweep of human history because it's opened up trade routes and this kind of thing. And what I find interesting about that is it kind of ties into another common sort of motif in historical talking or thinking, which is sort of that a certain amount of time needs to elapse before you can judge a situation satisfactorily, historically. Um, because in the present, you know, it, it's too complicated, too much noise, we're acting emotionally rather than dispassionately, etc., etc., right? But what seems to me interesting is that it, that kind of perspective seems to presuppose that there comes a time when we actually sort of understand history properly, when in fact it's, it, the historical understandings seem to be changing sort of with every new paper that's released in historical journals, and... Um, uh, you know, the, the sort of the different fashions of historical, any sort of academic or intellectual field, but I, I mean history for, for the purposes of this example, are always rising and falling and our understandings of historical periods change with every, you know, sort of new wave of scholars and interpreters. So I wonder if you, I, there, there's no sort of real question there, I guess, but I wonder if you could comment on sort of the, the dynamics of, of when history kind of solidifies into something that we can work with and the ethics of it. You know, it's a give and take situation because while recent events are clouded by their very recentness and the emotion involved and the propaganda involved and the and the the, the lack of an understanding of how it all plays out 20, 30, 40 years from now, um you, you you can gain some benefit by going 30, 40, 50 years in the future and then having that sort of godlike perspective from above where you can really see how events from today fit into the larger scheme, you know, maybe when you examine the whole century as a whole. And, and yes, there's no question that you get perspective when you do that. But let's not pretend that you don't lose something as well. That emotion and that propaganda and all that stuff that clouds the the recent history to those of us viewing it from recent, you know, aftermath, that that's all part of the story too. The reason the wrath of the cons question that you brought up comes up is we were talking about um, the difference between 
the ability centuries later to look at events minus the emotion and minus the pain and minus the suffering and maybe get a get a good view of of you know with the dispassionate sort of academic observation of how these things look and when you do that you see all these wonderful benefits for example they're, they're often called the benefits of empire let's not blame the mongols specifically for something that many other empires have been blamed for i mean rome was often blamed for what was the old line that they create a wasteland and call it peace um but there are certainly benefits, right? When the trade routes are safe and people can can exchange things, and they and you know a lot of these uh, empires were very tolerant of, of of local customs because it helped keep the peace. And for example, when scholars will decide to reinvent an era, you mentioned how you know academics will often go through a period of revision. And part of the reason why is, as I think we all understand, there's there's two things involved. One, there's a dynamic of needing to find something new. Um, in different eras. I mean, if we're going to continue to write about eras that have had a lot of stuff written already, you have to find new angles. But there's also new things and new approaches and new ways of looking at things. The problem is, is that we lose the now factor, the part that if you could go back in a time machine and talk to the people living in the time of the Mongols, that they would have told you, for example. It's like, it's like, and I think we said this in Wrath of the Khans, imagine going back in a time machine from 500 years from now and interviewing some Jewish folks during the Holocaust. You know, you're probably going to think, wow, these people just can't get an overall perspective of this thing. They're just way too blinded by, you know, the pain and the suffering. And there's all these things that just keep them from seeing the grand vision and the godlike view from above. At the same time, one could perhaps argue that the way they're seeing it is more inherently accurate, right? Um, so, for example, with the Wrath of the Khans, we talked about how the there's a current wave of scholarship with the Mongols, and, and totally valid, by the way, nothing wrong with it, to point out all these good things that we have today because of the Mongol conquests and the Mongol empire and, and the trade routes and all the things that they accomplished. The point of the show was to try to balance it out and say, yes, but that's always the case. But we future people who are enjoying those benefits did not have to pay the bill. The bill was paid by the people who lived during that time period. So whereas a historian today might say the Mongols are getting a bad rap, um, you know, everybody focuses on the killings, nobody's paying enough attention to the other things, and that's totally true. But what is so typical, and I don't I don't blame anybody. There may be no way around this when you decide to revise history and look at another angle. But but I was reading some of these revisionist things when I did that episode, and they make people like Genghis Khan sound like George Washington. Um, you know, and, and and I remember reading it going, there's nothing wrong with repairing the historical record and balancing it out, but let's not go that far. And and you know, some people took me to task. Um, for that as though I'd come up with that idea myself. But of course I hadn't. I remember I had a groundbreaking moment in my own way of thinking about this when I read, uh, there's a historian in Australia named A.B. Bosworth. And, and Bosworth was the first one to really make me aware when I was younger of this phenomenon because I was an Alexander the Great fan. And I was one of these people that enjoyed the fact that Alexander always sounded like one of these philosopher kings, you know, and he, he, was, he was a pupil of the great teachers like Aristotle and all the so you have this idea of this high-minded guy and what Bosworth has done over over several history books on Alexander is remind us that yes 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 but he was also a butcher and he and that wasn't just a that's not just a modern person's way of looking back and saying wow weren't those people back in those times barbaric it would be 
the same if we looked at Alexander the Great from 50 years later. The people during his time period looked at him that way. Um, and once I remember reading that, it, it sort of changed my whole paradigm because you think to yourself, you know, Alexander very well may have been a bit like a philosopher king, but let me not lose track of the fact that he's also a butcher. And, and so that's what sort of changed my mind. And I, I took the A.B. Bosworth approach when we talked about someone like, you know, Genghis Khan. This is an amazing human being who did amazing things and helped shape our modern world in positive ways. But the people who lived through his time period paid an enormous emotional price for, for what happened and, and often a personal one. I think you raised a lot of very interesting questions there. Obviously, the the kind of great man issue, which I remember you talked about in your in your Khan's episode about are we you know are you willing to kill innocent people? No, you're okay. You're disqualified from being a great man in history. And the idea of you know history, the wheels of history being greased with blood or whatever the quotation is. But something I want to pick up a little bit now, just on what you're saying about how authentic is our impression of a period? Is it is it more when we have that you know the fifty from fifty thousand feet? Uh, view downwards and we can see the big picture or is it when we're right up close and we can actually you know we can we we can get a sense of how people really felt and how they experienced these um these times and i want to use that to talk a, a little bit about a contemporary trend in in certainly in academic history um which is the history of emotions um and i don't know how much this has kind of flicked up on your radar because in one sense history of i mean emotions in history are it's 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 constant history has always been about people's emotions and about grand passions and narratives and stories but there's now this kind of more i would say kind of slightly systematic attempt or 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 um st- or um structured attempt to write about the emotions of people in the past in a subtle way so that we try not to project our own feelings onto them that we take their emotions for what they were not as um you know uh prototypical emotions of ours etc etc do you think that it's possible to do this in a meaningful way because ultimately one way in which people obviously have a limit a limit doing this is it, it helps when people write down in letters things like i felt very de- depressed about this or this this has completely destroyed my emotions about whatever it is but when they leave much more um subtle traces you obviously have to reach a bit do you think that it's it's possible for us now many decades or centuries or millennia later to give an authentic idea of the emotions of of the dead you know, you you brought up the two key important points in that. That's a great question, and you framed it perfectly. And there's two sides to it. The first one is, do we have the material, right, to, to, to deduce this? So, for example, we finished up a, recently a long, exhaustive, and still hardly scratched the surface series on the First World War, where you have so much material from average people that I think it's possible and not just average people, but but people who are close enough to our own time and culture so that we don't have to stretch too far and they're thinking about things, right? They're not that dissimilar from ourselves. And so when you read their accounts, they're coming at it from a viewpoint that we that may not be perfectly understandable to us, but is relatable. It's like it's like somebody speaking the same language as you are, but perhaps with a very different accent. 
you can still understand it enough to get something meaningful from the conversation. And so you look at the First World War, and there is, and this is why it was so hard for us to do as a program, there is so much material. And the more material you have and the more of it that's from average people, the more you can, you can sort of put together a collage that gives you a 360-degree view um, and helps you better understand multiple perspectives and, and layers of society, right? Everyone from the, the Douglas Haig running the war you know, for the British Empire to the poor guy who Douglas Haig's actions forces out of the trench that day at the Battle of the Somme. Um, it becomes a lot harder as you go farther back in history to periods that have a lot less material to, to glean information from. So, for example, you go to the Greek and Persian Wars, you know, in the, in the 500 to 300 BCE era, and all of a sudden you're going to start to rely on a couple of major sources who may be biased, who certainly look at this from a different viewpoint, uh, that don't include anyone who was actually on the ground um, and have no peer review either to make sure that we're getting a, a um, an even halfway decent rendering of what happened. And so, so I think part of this question hinges on the source material that you have to work with. The other, and you also brought this up, has to do with cultural questions. How much of what we're talking about in these stories involves a shared human quality, a humanness that we can infer is relatively constant throughout the eras, and how much of it is culturally based. So, for example, if we talk to, to keep using the Genghis Khan Mongol idea that you brought up, if we talk about these people the way they did a hundred years ago as sort of bloodthirsty uh, barbarians who would cut your head off just as soon as looking at you, do we do we assume that this makes them let, let's use you know human terms here, good and evil and those kind of things, or do we assume that these people grew up in a culture where any of us could have been transported as little babies in a time machine, grow up in that culture and think exactly like they do. In, in other words, how much, you know, it's the old nurture nature thing or how much of this is a human experience versus a cultural one. And I, and I think you get into that too. I mean, sometimes I will bring up, I, I did a show on the, um, on the situation in the, in the, late medieval German city of Munster that involved uh, something during the Radical Reformation uh, uh, involving uh, uh, Anabaptists who took over the city. And I got uh, a note back from a person who, who was upset with the way we approached it by pointing out that if you look at this from the Anabaptist perspective, things looked very different. And so sometimes you think to yourself, okay, one, that's a good point. But two, what are you supposed to do if the source material isn't there? And how much of this can you say, okay, what these people did is this very human reaction versus what these people did is a very medieval human reaction? So I think you found the nice, difficult dividing lines. And I think historians wrestle with that. What's culture versus what's humanness? And how much can we deduce from the source material? I've always said that there's no way to really understand the past the way you can understand your own lifetime. Because in your own lifetime, you are following events on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And you get to measure your responses on a day-to-day -day basis. So you understand the, the march of events better than anyone will ever understand it in the future looking back on it. But the problem is, is you're also blinded by just being able to see what's directly in front of you and around you. You don't have that 360-degree view as though you were looking at it from a satellite in space. 
Singaporeans got their ultimate wish, it would be to be able to synthesize those two things and somehow create a 360-degree, you know, here's what it was like to be living through the time period, now here's what it looks like from a 100-year vantage point. Does that make sense? I think that does make sense, and it actually makes me want to ask a kind of more prosaic question about your working methods, because thinking about different perspectives and the different kinds of material material you have to synthesize, material that comes from more academic historians, more sort of dispassionate uh, 50,000 feet views, and material from people who live through historical events, the sort of on-the-ground, emotionally engaged perspectives. How do you go about putting all this together when you sit in front of the microphone and just tell your stories? Because, in a way, you, you don't really have much of a template for this. This is kind of a new form. Uh, podcasts haven't been around for all that long, and of course we had radio beforehand. And in fact, there are, there are other things as well that could have been kinds of precursors to the type of thing that you do. Ben and I, the other day, were talking about some of the uh, older historians. And we discussed in particular AJP Taylor, who would just look into the camera and talk for an hour on the BBC about Mussolini or whatever. And, you know, everyone would eagerly sit around on a Saturday night listening to this history lecture. Um, makes me feel nostalgic. Right, and that sort of thing seems not to happen very much anymore, except like that that's sort of a skill that's being lost, but I think uh, it's its certainly not the same as what you do. I mean, you're, you're, the scale of your undertakings are, are very different to that. But I, I was just curious how you, um, how you begin to synthesize all of this material, you know, the, the material that pertains to the more distanced academic perspective, the more immediate testimonies of people who live through it and, and sort of what that looks like when you're putting everything together and then sit down at the microphone. Well, I mean, you brought up what I always call the old historians. The funny thing is, is that they're not even that old. I mean, really, really history is, uh, has changed remarkably in the last 30 or 40 years in the way they do this. And I often compl I often talk about the, the trade-offs uh, between the, the way history is done now versus the way it was when Taylor, for example, or everyone going back to Toynbee or, or Durant or any of those guys, the way that they did it. And I often try to, to try to talk about it in the way that it's changing in the U.S. Uh, higher academic system at the universities. Traditionally, history was considered uh, uh, part of the humanities as a subject. The humanities, of course, involve such subjective and human things as language, law, religion, art, those kinds of things. It's been transitioning for decades now into something that's closer to a hard science, something that belongs more appropriately with anthropology, geology, archaeology, and, and, and whatnot. But what that's done is change the way that the, the, the discipline is handled. So I'm reading some stuff right now for the next hardcore history topic that is remarkably scientific. And, and when you read it, it, it's almost written for people who are other historians because it's difficult for people who aren't archaeologists or historians to even follow the very scientific, very technological lingo that they use now. It's very specialized. And it's a trade-off because you get much more accurate history that way, right? No one will say anything that can't be quantified. These things are all peer-reviewed. Other historians will rip apart your paper and, 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 and look for, you know, hard evidence for everything that someone says. The problem is, is that if history is a humanity still, 
or if there's a humanities side to history, there are going to be important elements that are not quantifiable in the same way that religion is not quantifiable, right? These are, these are parts of the human experience that involve interpretation and, and, and some risk, I would suggest. A guy like Taylor or Durant or Toynbee or the old historians were perfectly comfortable operating within that realm. Modern-day historians aren't. The problem is, is that there's so much in, in, that we bring out, for example, in the podcast that, that people feel is so interesting and new, and it's not interesting and new at all. It's old, and it's, it's the way that historians, of which I'm not one, used to be able to look at things, which is to say, wow, this is a very dramatic event. And, 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 and yet, even drama is something that is so unquantifiable that a modern-day historian would often be somewhat uncomfortable discussing it because they're going to get ripped apart in a peer journal. How do you how do you support this or that theory about someone's feelings or emotions? You talked a second ago about um, about emotions, and and I, you know the problem with emotions that that historians sometimes have modern historians is that they will not include them very often they will talk about viewpoints and perspectives but but emotions are so important to so much of what we human beings do but how in god's name do you quantify them how do you support your theories how do you you know other than than personal journals which you also mentioned earlier once you get beyond the era where you have much of that material to work from the human side of the experience becomes difficult to to tease out of the story and we're stuck more with pottery dating and radiocarbon analysis and you know stuff that is is vitally important and much more provable and accurate but i feel like we lose something in the transition i've i've said for a few years now that i'm not sure that we shouldn't split the historical discipline into two sides and have a scientific history that's more like archaeology and have one that's more like an old historical approach in the humanities and then try to synthesize those two approaches sometimes to see if they could somehow blend in a way that helped um, illuminate things a little bit more and allowed, you know, it's funny because if you pick up a novel today that's based on history, you can get some of that wonderful emotion that a guy like Toynbee or a guy like Taylor or a guy like Durant had no problem at all transferring to you as part of an official history 50 years ago. But if you pick up a modern history, is going to be missing. Part of what we take advantage with in the program that we do is I'll sit down and I'm not a very good person to do multiple things. So, I mean, people will say, can you do this or can you do that? And I'll say, no, I'm living with this story for a while. And what I'm trying to do is is tease out the parts of this story that are just fascinating. And sometimes it's radiocarbon dating stuff, but sometimes it's it's the things that a lot of modern historians would be very uncomfortable with when you talk about how did this person feel or what did this incident sort of you know, feel like for those experiencing it. And a modern historian would say, you can't know that because it's going to be based, it's going to be filtered through the lens of a culture that may be long dead that you can't get in touch with. So you are, by the very experience, going to be filtering it through your modern cultural glasses. And yet, that was nothing that historians had problems with doing 40 or 50 years ago. So it's interesting as as human beings for us to try to get a, get a, get a, an impression of human history because if you take the human side out, you're getting a, a misimpression. But if you focus on it too much, you're probably tainting a view of the past with your own modern, you know, biases and whatnot. So, so I think we're maybe in a transition period. But I will say honestly that I, I'm inspired by those old historians, and I miss that approach. 
I I have to say I do. I the other day I was uh, just flicking through. Uh, I was taking a break from the usual kind of diet of, of history that I read, which you know itself I I love and find very interesting. But I started reading this biography of um, who was it Turgenev, and I thought, wow, this is so so such so, so sparkling. It's, it's it's so witty. It's so fluent. I you know it's just the pages were just turning. I thought, why is this so different? I realized, oh, it was written in the nineteen fifties, and exactly as you say, you know, it's this idea that there was no inherent contradiction between uh, you know scholarly rigor and enjoyment. This idea that to be a good historian, you also have to be a good writer. And then, yes, from the kind of 1960s, 1970s, there was this idea of appropriating the social science methods to ape them in the hope of some, of, of taking that, that scientific rigour and thinking that the only history that you could do was, I don't know, quantifying the number of sheep that were kept in northern Italy in 17th century, you know, whenever it was. Uh, and that was the only kind of rigorous thing. Again. And your suggestion about splitting these two things off, I find fascinating. I mean, in some ways, the, the French... The French often refer to, to history as a social science. I mean, overtly as a social science. Whereas if you said that in, in England, I think you'd probably get howls of, of, of dismay. Um, James, should we talk a little bit now about decline? Yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, we've reached decline. Um, <laughs> so, Dan, you know, this is obviously, it's a, it's, it's, decline is something which, I focus on in my work looking around 1900 and one reason in which I was drawn to it was because of how popular people talk about how how much people talk about decline nowadays um and as you know this goes in cycles people you know especially in the United States there's a whole declinist industry you know and it was very big in the early 70s very big in the late 80s very big again now why is the idea of decline such an appealing narrative for so many people is the first question that we have for you. And the second is, why is it that when people talk about decline, about, you know, we're in decline, it's rare that they do in a, in a, in a, do so in a kind of nuanced way. They rarely say things like, well, you know, actually our, our art is pretty, uh, pretty uh, wonderful, but unfortunately, economically, we've lost a little bit of relative uh, position. You know, it, it's, it's usually kind of, we are in decline writ large, our art our society, our morals, our politics, our military, our, our economy, they're all, they're all decadent. Why is this narrative so appealing? Well, you're right. It's a constant motif, and you can see it in, in even going back to ancient times. I did uh, My senior thesis course in college was on Rome, and, and Rome has this persistent, in the ancient period, um, this persistent view that there was a golden era that predated the current era and the funny thing about the golden era is that they will be talking about a golden era where if you go back and study that those people themselves thought that they were in a period of decline talking about a previous era that was more golden than the one that they lived in um i i think i'll answer this the only way i can answer any of these questions with my own opinion so take it for what it's worth but again i would relate this to the that is almost the collective version of what we tend to do as individuals uh the, the the romanticization of our own past you know if you could go on a time machine back to when you were in grammar school and relive the experience uh in in a fresh sense so that you remembered all the little things that your memory has blocked out since then you would probably, just guessing here, probably come back and say, wow, I really romanticized some of that experience. I, I forgot all these things that had happened that were that were just as bad as what I'm living with today. If, if, if that's how we handle things as individuals, 
I think that that transferring that same sort of um, shall we call it personally edited view of, of, of our collective past. I, I, I think that, that, that that's, that's the same thing that we do with our individual past. So, so to go back and imagine that things were so much better back in the good old days seems to be something we do as individuals and as societies. It seems to be not, not universal, but pretty darn common in a lot of cultures. And, and it's also a historical motif where, where, for example, you go back and you, you, you look at, say, ancient Greek writers who will be talking about the Achaemenid Persian Empire, for example, and they want it to fit this sort of narrative that you start off, you know, it's Voltaire's idea about, about how societies progress through a period where you start off hard and tough with good values, you know, the, the wooden shoes going up the stairs and the silk slippers coming down the stairs, as he said, when now you get rich and, and luxury loving and soft and then your, your culture declines as a result of your softness. Um, this is a motif that historians have used forever, whether they're Roman or Greek or Chinese or what have you, where they, they impose that sort of template on, on, on human culture, right? And, and, and as a way to have a societally contemporary view of a decline in values and ethics and morals and standards and toughness. Um, and that, that they usually tie to um, a, a, an increase in, for example, base sort of values, right? Now we care more about money. Back in the old days, we cared more about honor. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll see this over and over in, in societies, and it's hard to know whether or not you're actually getting a view of what they thought in those societies or whether you're getting the view of what a Herodotus or an Appian, or one of these historians who writes about those kinds of eras are trying to say. Um, so the notion of decline, I think, is something that many of us have in our personal lives when we examine, you know, comparing a comparison between now. I did it the other day. I was talking to some guy about how we won't let our children go ride their bikes out, you know, without parental supervision. Or when I was a kid, my mom would say, you know, just come back before nighttime, right? And she wouldn't see me all day. And I was eight years old. I wouldn't let my kids out of my sight. So is that a decline in, in, in how we used to have as a society, a better society in those days, or a society that raised more, um, more self-sufficient individuals because we would allow them to just go off and be on their own? I think you take that and you broaden it out on a societal-wide level, and maybe it's the most natural human thing in the world to think that the good old days were better and the current days, those young kids are so screwed up and they're all covered with tattoos and they listen to terrible music and look at their dances and look at their morals and, and conveniently forget all the things from our own youth that maybe are analogous to that. Does that make sense? I think, I think a decline in a golden age may be built into our DNA somewhere. I think, I think it, it makes absolute sense. And I think just speaking about, say, the United States or Britain, you know, after the fact, it's very easy to romanticize. And I remember Barbara Tuckman has this great quotation in her book about the, the kind of Belle Epoque era um, before the First World War. And she says, I can tell you as a general rule of my researches, if you ever hear about someone talking about how wonderful the Belle Epoque was, they wrote that after 1940, <laughs> not, not at the time. No, that's a good and point. So, and it's, it's indicative of a lot of periods in history, I think. Good point. <laughs> Similarly, I mean, the United States, if, if we, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of a granular way about decline shortly. But, you know, for instance, today, people say, oh, well, we're in decline. Think we're not things aren't how they used to be. And you say, well, when was this golden period of, of U.S. power? 
And if you think, well, in, 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 if you're looking statistically, it was probably shortly after the Second World War when the United States, you know, had 50% of the world's economic product. It was the um, only nuclear power. It was everyone else was in ruins. But if you if you know if we, if we go back and kind of you know read the diaries so to speak of us when we're younger back in 1950 or something immensely anxious time as you as you've as you've um, as you've uh, you've worked on as you've shown you know with McCarthy and everything hugely anxious that we we're, we're you know the reds under the bed and at any moment now we're going to collapse whereas now 50 60 years on it's still this idea of oh well relatively speaking that was when we were we were right up there but james i think you want to talk a bit more about about things like this about what we're talking about decline right well let's just gonna ask um that seems so the so the perspective that i think you've uh you you've just laid out quite um quite effectively is one that seems well true first of all i i think it's absolutely right that there is there is some sort of psychological or even biological component to this that just makes it a sort of universal feature of the human but also the the trouble with it the way i see that argument being used quite often in a lot of you know popular and academic literature is it's sort of used to diffuse quite good arguments, or not not necessarily good arguments, but sort of evidence-based arguments about decline, about sort of relative positions in time of a given society or something like that. And I think the danger with that is that it can be used to sort of diffuse the argument, because then, um, unless you just want to say, well, no societies are ever any better or worse than others, and it's just sort of this inborn human tendency to complain about things. Um, you sort of lose the ability to discriminate between uh, the historical states of different societies. And I think, um, yes, at, at the moment, especially because that the rhetoric is at such a high pitch where there's sort of, there are people sort of saying, you know, we burned, there was a moment in the 80s when we could have chosen to conserve oil reserves and we didn't do it and now we're just in serious trouble. Or there are, you know, on, on the other side of the coin, there are people sort of saying we're on the verge of creating a super intelligence and we're all going to be linked together and we're not even going to have bodies anymore. And it's just, it's going to be wonderful, you know, pleasure on demand. I, I suppose the danger is you, you can sort of say, um, oh, this is just another decline argument like everyone has always done. But sort of how do, you, how do you know that you're not the turkey on the day before Thanksgiving who for the previous several hundred days has always been right about the fact that he wasn't about to be slaughtered. Or, or Turkey in 1918, which, you know, people have been talking about it in decline for 200 years and they were right. But then eventually... You know, it's again it's the the, the uh, sorry to mi- I'm sorry to mix some metaphors, but about the you know the boy that cried wolf. Eventually, the wolf does actually come. Yeah, that's the end of the story. It does it does actually happen. So, so so we will be thinking fifteen years from now in the era of superintelligence, where we don't have bodies anymore. The golden age when we used to have bodies and how great it was. Um, you you, you know, it's an interesting line because if, if I can rephrase what you're saying, you're essentially saying that we're trapped in the situation where we always look back to a golden age, whether we're talking about individuals back when it was the good old days when I was growing up or when we're talking about societies that do this collectively. And yet, there are such things as decline, and there are eras where, in a relative sense and judged from a narrow viewpoint, this or that was better. I mean, if you wanted to say the British Empire was stronger in a military and fiscal sense in 1900 than it was in 1950, that's a truism. 
Um, so if somebody was looking back and saying that there was a golden age, you would have to define how they meant golden. But if they meant in a fiscal and military sense, I think that's that's you couldn't argue with that. At the same time, you're right. If 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 we're going to discount all of this stuff as a natural human sort of trope that that just is is something we all do, well then how do you differentiate between the ones that are part of that and the ones that are statistically viable and supportable? Um I think that's absolutely, and I think, by the way, you see this, you know, when you look at Rome, because when they would talk about this golden age, in some senses, they were right, because in some ways, you know, if you wanted to narrowly define it, you could make a case that, listen, things were better in this sense for Rome 200 years before the time period that people were looking back on. What I think helps you differentiate the two is is the quantifiable versus the unquantifiable. So if you wanted to say, that yes, Rome was militarily more powerful 200 years before this period they were looking at, you might be able to quantify that. If you want to go, though, where the authors sometimes go, and they'll say something like, we don't make men like this guy anymore. You know, the, we don't have the kind of morals and the, the human, no more heroes like, you know, Sulla anymore. I mean, that's where you start to get to that that traditional motif where you're going, we don't make men like that anymore. That's much more the the um the stuff that I think historians rebel against. I think that they're more comfortable with the quantifiable stuff. So for example, like you said, Britain in 1900, there's a lot of ways you can quantify that. I'll give you an example though, because you mentioned the United States after the Second World War when when the United States really stood astride the world for a while as this as this one undamaged power amongst a world that was destroyed, essentially, you know. Um there are a lot of Americans that look at that as the beginning of our own decline, even though we were at the top of the mountain in so many so, so many ways statistically, whether you wanted to talk militarily or economically or all these things, because to many Americans, this was the beginning of us losing our way in terms of our constitutional and revolutionary roots, right? The ones that said, don't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, no standing militaries, no alliances, all these things that had that had sort of been part of the American experience were thrown off in that era. And part of the reason they were thrown off is because you know, it's like saying I'm never going to buy a huge house and, and I'm never going to drive a Ferrari because that's not the kind of guy I am, but you also don't have the money. And then one day you win the lottery and you have $60 million and you go, ah, that big house and that Ferrari don't sound so bad to me now. Um, and, and so I, I do think that there's some of this is quantifiable. And if you're, if you're narrow enough in your, in your criteria, you can make a, an absolutely supportable case about decline in certain situations. I think once you start to see those, those traditional human elements come in where people start talking about kids weren't, kids weren't that, uh, that, that, that sexualized back when I was a kid, you begin to see the, the romantic side of it come in. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, I think the point about, um, you make about contemporary Americans saying, "Well, this is this is how this is the moment where our decline began." is very interesting to me. At our yeah, height, at our, yes, at our, interesting. At the peak. There's uh, there's one question I'd like to ask that in a moment. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your a uh, uh, little bit more about your um, your working methods from a slightly self interested perspective. But the thing is, is that do you think that how can I phrase this? So the 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 heights at 1950. Looking at now, even even if we assume that a lot of the rhetoric about China is overblown, which I'm sure it is, or China may well still implode, it could happen. Everyone in the 1980s said Japan was about to become number one, etc., etc. But f failing all that, 
in the next decade or two, China will be number one. I mean, by, by a lot of metrics, it already is number one. And although the United States will still be enormously powerful and it will still be, you know, one of the, the most powerful countries in the world, from the, for the first time since about 1870 or 1890, it will no longer be at least the economic number one. And like a lot of other states, the US has often considered itself to have this kind of exceptional, semi-providential mission. Do you think that we can draw any lessons from past empires in decline, and I use the word empire perhaps a bit rashly, about how Americans today or the Americans in 10 or 15 years' time will adapt psychologically to this new reality? Um, Obviously, the British had this kind of escape clause, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, the British like to tell themselves, well, you know, we're the Greeks to the Americans' Rome. You know, we we will still have this power behind the scenes. We speak the same language. We have, you know, we're Anglo-Saxons, we're cousins, whatever this kind of rhetoric would be about a special relationship. That somehow, somehow it's it had, it's not quite as bad as it might be. We still have this kind of, this continuity. But Americans will not have that with China. Do you think this is going to be problematic for Americans? Or do you think we're going to be surprised by how America's self-image evolves? You know, that question is so deep. There's so many things that that gets me thinking about. Um, Start with the idea, and you know, I I tend to be a historical pessimist, so take what I say with a grain of salt here. But but to me, that's where the likelihood of, of, of great instability comes in in my mind. I mean, when you look at, for example, the First World War, it's a wonderful if you wanted to play with it that way, and a lot of historians have a wonderful example where you can talk about a sort of a changing of the guard in terms of national strength, and that that created a a potential earthquake-like situation. So you have the rise of a Germany that didn't even exist a lifetime before, beginning to strain a system that had been in place for a hundred or so years, and 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 rebel against a status quo that was set up in another era. So to so to take that example to China now, the China of today is the most successful version of China in a very long time. And traditionally, of course, China is an immensely strong state if you're looking at all human history, with huge amounts of potential technological ability. I mean, and and really has been, if this was a stock market, you could say that China as a as a national stock has been down for a couple hundred years and is slowly but surely recovering. A lot of people feel like it's not even slowly but surely. But what that's doing is is creating stresses on an international system that was set up before China was anywhere near this big of a concern. And so one of two things starts to happen. Either we figure out ways to integrate that new reality into the global structure, and I think you see examples of trying to do that. Some of these trade agreements, for example, are ways to try to codify a new reality. But if it gets to be too much of a if it gets to be too much of a disconnect between the power of some something like China and, and, and the actual structures of the world that are supposed to integrate that, I think you begin to see the kind of fractures that can lead to bad outcomes. Uh, an example of Germany needing their place in the sun in the First World War and feeling like, like the, the system discriminated against them because they weren't around when it was set up and because of international jealousies or competition. You see a similar thing, um, I think, when you look at um at, at like Japan between the two world wars when they felt like they were being slighted 
in naval agreements, uh, the Washington and the London naval agreements, where the Japanese were were told that Britain and the United States can have this many battleships, but you can't have that many, and we're and we know you could build more than we could, but we're going to codify this with the international rules, and 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 that creates a situation where the real strength of a power is is artificially constrained or not or, or not taken into account, and that creates imbalances, that creates situations that could spiral into bad outcomes potentially. And if you're a pessimist like I am, you look at China's growth and say, okay, is the United States and, and the rest of the world going to be willing to cede to a growing China what a growing China feels like it deserves? I think you could you could overlay that template to some of the problems you see now with, with islands in the Pacific that the Chinese are claiming uh, sovereignty over and issues that they're having with the Japanese and even the Americans over in these areas and, and, and creating potential flashpoints. If, if, if you wanted to be realistic about this, I suppose you could say something like a really powerful China probably, you know, I mean, I, mean, I always try to put myself in their shoes, right? The United, if this was the United States we were talking about, the U.S. would have no problem at all saying those islands are ours, they should be ours, stay away from those islands. We have a much harder time when someone else takes that same approach. And yet I think you could make a case that great states tend to act similarly. And what China is doing, we would call it, is feeling their oats, would be the statement we would use here in the United States. And, and if that can be integrated, if, if the reality of the global structure can somehow reflect the reality on the ground, I think you can begin to integrate that into a peaceful sort of, uh, of, of world situation. If, if there's too much resistance from the powers that already have what they want and are already pre preeminent on the world stage – then you're going to see pushback from states like China, very similar to the pushback you saw from Germany before the First World War, very similar to the pushback you saw from the Chinese, I mean the Japanese between the two world wars, natural sort of stuff. And that's where I believe fractures can open and, and strange things can happen and miscalculations can be made. And, and you said it yourself. I mean, if the United States were to get some, some government that was screaming about our loss of prestige in the world or this or that, I mean, you know, Look at the situation the German public was in when a demagogue like Hitler was able to exploit certain national moods and passions and hurts and feelings because of the given situation. I mean, I think you open up the door to radicalism and 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 unpredictable events when that happens. And, and so I don't know if that truly answers your question, but when you say what's going to happen with something like China, I think it's a wild card. And we haven't had a wild card like that certainly since the Soviet Union really – really settled down and solidified. The Soviet Union was a much more unpredictable animal in the 1950s than they were, for example, in the 1970s and 1980s. And, and with the U.S. hegemony since the Soviet Union fell, we've been dealing with, with countries that really, I mean, we could talk about invading Iraq and be pretty darn sure Iraq wasn't going to really hurt mainland United States very much. It's a relatively painless endeavor. When you talk about Putin's Russia, or the Chinese government of today, all of a sudden we're dealing with entirely different animals. And what I always argue is we've had a whole generation of U.S. policymakers and foreign policy experts grow up never having to worry about the danger posed by another world power. So when that happens, we're going to be dealing with a relatively green and inexperienced U.S. foreign policy elite who hasn't had to worry about the concerns of another major power in almost a generation. So that's where you're going to have some very interesting um, learning on the fly, we might say, here in the United States in the next decade or two, I think. 
I think that's a very interesting point about this new generation of, of the inexperienced. I think it's also quite telling. I mean, I'm, I have to say, when I look at material from pre-1914, it's quite striking that not only uh, had people had a generation of, of course, people were thinking about great power war, but they hadn't actually waged it for a while. And there was almost a sense of excitement, the sense of, well, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's an ennobling pursuit. I think luckily we probably lost, especially in the age of nuclear weapons, we probably lost the overt belief anyway that war is an ennobling pursuit but it's certainly uh, something that that makes me feel slightly anxious i, I realize we're we're kind of running up against the margins of our of our time but i wanted to ask you a little bit more about about your work and, and I, I at the risk of sounding obsequious how do you okay this is this does sound obsequious but, <laughs> how, but how how do you how are you able to uh, do you have i mean how have you gone about being able to just because it's it's I can tell you, and, and I'm sure James can tell you from the experience of trying to teach history to, you know, young, you know, interested students, it's very hard, even though they're young and interested, because particularly because a lot of the material, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of the material is very dry that you're that you that you may want to set them as reading material. And how you're able to distill a vast amount of uh, material about an enormous topic, which you know fills you know rooms full of, of of books, and distill it into a relatively kind of condensed, very engaged way of so so that someone who even doesn't really have a huge amount of knowledge about this period can be gripped by it. Because I have to say that I can, anyone who hasn't tried it, it's a lot harder than it than than, than you may immediately think. It's enormously hard, and yet you're able to do it within these very kind of compelling episodes. And I must say. I, uh, Sorry, double obsequious. Now, I will certainly be setting your um, your podcast if I'm ever teaching these uh, these questions to students, so they can kind of get into it that way and get get the kind of an emotional grip on it as well as perhaps just a factual grip. So, I suppose how do you how how have you developed this 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 technique which allows you to do this so well? Well, first of all, thank you. I mean, I love hearing that because I'm always worried that we're not doing a good job of it. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty self-critical, but I, I think it's a good thing in the sense that if I go back and listen to our old hardcore history episodes, I can see, in my own opinion, I guess, that we're doing a, a slightly better job, uh, hopefully over time, of, of doing this. Because like any show, what we're doing has evolved. And so if you go listen to the early episodes, you can hear what we had intended to do. And the intention was to have the same sort of conversations in a podcast that I used to have with other history majors. And so we might go learn the dry stuff about this or that in a history class, but then we'd get out and have lunch together and talk about the cool things that we liked, right? So all these twisty little elements. And so when we started the podcast, I thought, well, I'll just do a program on the twisty elements. And I'll do it for people who already know the story. So if we were going to talk about something weird about Hitler, well, I wasn't going to tell you about Hitler. I was going to assume you knew all that. I was just going to talk about the weird stuff we history majors would talk about. And so the first early shows really don't have a lot of background. They're short, uh, and we talk about the weird stuff. And what ended up happening was, was not something that I foresaw, but that was that non-history people were listening. And they were enjoying the, the stuff, but they didn't have any context. And so they were asking me to provide more context so that the weird stuff made more sense. And so slowly but surely, we started to try to add as, as, as much as we needed to so that you felt the impact of what we, we call them twists. They're like Twilight Zone type 
thoughts that history majors have played with forever. I mean, the most famous has to be the counterfactuals, right? The what ifs. Those are history major questions, right? We love that stuff. So, so slowly but surely, we would add more of the narrative history so that the twists made sense. And, 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 and we tried to keep it to time limits, and the audience kept telling me, stop worrying about time limits, and so you can watch the shows get longer. I never intended to sit down and do multiple four-hour podcasts, you know, on, on single events. I mean, that was never part of the intention. And I feel like if we are able to do that in a way that you like, it's something we grew into. And it's something that I feel like I'm still growing into. I mean, I hope to continue to figure out the way to do this better as we go on. Um, but we start off with what is it that fascinates me? And then how can, and, and you know, the good part about this is I think over time, the audience that's listening to the show are people who also find that stuff that I find fascinating, fascinating, or they would have left us long ago. So my, my antenna generally are pretty good now in, in relating to my current audience when I say, oh my gosh, I got this idea in the shower about you know this thing that's so interesting. And, and we figure out ways to incorporate those things into the show. And then we say to ourselves, okay, how do we distill? I mean, the First World War is a perfect example. What a nightmare. What an idiot to decide to do the entire First World War. I'm a terrible, terrible topic selector. And it's a little like jumping off a cliff in the dark. And I always think that, you know, it's going to be a five-foot drop and then I, I find myself 20 feet and, and falling and saying, what, what have I gotten myself into? And and so sometimes we aren't sure it's going to work out. It, it, you know, I mean, I'm, I remember being halfway through the the World War One topic going, this is never going to work. <laughs> but but you don't know. I mean, you're stuck. You have to finish it. And you have to try to make it make it function. But but it's the same problem that real historians have when they have to sit there and go, all right, I'm going to write a 500 page book on this. What what makes it in the narrative, and what do I have to leave out? Um, and, and and so we do the same thing here. There's a lot of picking and choosing, and and our goal is always by the very end to have left you with something that we feel like is is at least a little representative of an overall feeling that if we do it right, should make you want to go get some good history books on the subject. Does that make sense? It certainly does. And I think it, it certainly left the both of us with that feeling. And uh, quite a few more people besides uh, if the, uh, the accounts of the internet are to be believed. You know, but, but, but that is the most gratifying because I am, I am, you know, the one thing when we started the podcast, I was doing, and I still do a current events podcast, which goes back to my radio days. I've, I've done that for 30 years almost, but I was having a conversation at my dinner table with my mother-in-law and I was telling these horrible, you know, history stories, which you guys have all heard now. And she said to me once at dinner, she said, well, why don't you do a podcast about these kind of stories? And I said, oh, I couldn't do that. I said, I'm not a historian. You know, if there's one thing a person with an undergraduate history degree knows is that they're not a historian, right? And she said to me, I wasn't aware you had to have a PhD to tell stories. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's both a really good point, but it also creates a responsibility on my part to not pretend that I'm telling you the truth. I mean, this is why we emphasize that I'm not a historian, because I have the freedom to do things that most historians today would not be comfortable doing because they can't quantify it, right? So 
this this is going to put a nice bow on this whole discussion where you started off with guys like Taylor and Toynbee and Durant and those people who in the old days would have had no problem at all um, coming out and saying the kinds of things Dan Carlin says today with a much better academic background to do it from, by the way. But but because modern day historians are so specialized, you know, one person's going to work on Carthaginian pottery their whole career, for example. They're not going to feel comfortable trying to, to place that in a much larger context because they're going to involve things that are out of their specialty. But this opens up the door to people like yours truly to try to, to look at the bigger things and, and wildly and irresponsibly speculate about them in ways that really doesn't step on the feet of modern-day historians because they wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole, you know, because, because it's not quantifiable, it's not scientific. And I, I hope they don't take it personally, but I don't even feel like we're crossing over into each other's realms that much. Does that make sense? That I, makes perfect sense, Dan. And uh, yeah, we're very, we're very grateful that you do have that freedom to, uh, to range more widely. Uh, I think we want to be we want to be respectful of your time, and I think we're we're pushing it the the boundaries now. So uh, we're going to wrap this episode up. Um, do you want to mention where people can find out about what you do online? I think you have a couple of different Twitter accounts and things. Oh, listen, if they, if they want to find my stuff, we have a website. It's just my name, dancarlin.com. You can search iTunes for my name, and anything we do should pop up. If there's a guy with a guitar doing music, it's a guy who's also named Dan Carlin, but not me. I, I don't do the music. Um, but but otherwise, yeah, just, just head to the website. You can follow us at, at Hardcore History on Twitter. I don't know how much I'm giving you of totally unique value with that, but you're always welcome to. And listen, the truth is, is that I, I feel really grateful and fortunate to be a part of the podcasting community. Everybody is so generous, so nice, um, and has been so great to me that I feel a real desire to, uh, I mean, I feel a real comradeship with the other people involved in this. I, I keep wanting to call it a new medium, but you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now. I mean, it's, it's starting to be a more established, more respectable kind of, um, kind of a genre out there. And I can't help but think that one of these days down the road, they're going to be ripping apart what I do in histories 40 years from now saying, see, these podcasts teach you what not to do when analyzing history or something. <laughs> Dan, it's extremely generous of you to have given your time. This is our first podcast and we couldn't have asked for a, a better or a more generous or, or wide-ranging and interesting guest to start off with. Thank you so much, and uh, we, we're really grateful. Thank you for joining us. You guys did a great job. Much success. Thanks very much for staying with us for the first episode of The Historical Present. I can't echo strongly enough what Ben just said about our guest, Dan Carlin. Big thanks go out to him again. Thanks also to the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities for making this podcast possible. Why not check us out online? We have a just-launched Twitter account, at HistPresent. Apparently we're not allowed enough characters for the full name, but we're there anyway. We're looking forward to bringing you the next episode of the Historical Present in the near future. Until then, thanks very much for listening.